Section five of the Sunny Side by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four, part two. War time. George's V.C. The last of the war stories. One. The colonel of the Ents Blankshires was seated in his office. It was not an imposing room to look at, furnished simply but tastefully with a table, officers for use of one, and a chair, ditto, one. It gave little evidence of the distressing scenes which had been enacted in it, and still less evidence of the terrible scene which was to come. Within these walls the colonel was accustomed to deal out stern justice to offenders, and many a hardened criminal had been carried out, fainting upon hearing the terrible verdict, One day's C.B. But the colonel was not holding the scales of justice now, for it was late afternoon. With an expression of the utmost anxiety upon his face, he read and re-read the official-looking document which he held in his hand. Even the photograph of the sergeant-major, signed Yours Ever Henry, which stood upon his desk, brought him no comfort. The door opened, and Major Murgatroyd, second in command of the famous Blankshires, came in. Come in, said Colonel Blowhard. The major saluted impressively. Then the colonel rose and returned his salute with the politeness typical of the British army. "'You wish to see me, colonel?' "'I did, major.' They saluted each other again. "'A secret document of enormous importance,' went on the colonel, "'has just reached me from the war office. It concerns the regiment, the dear old regiment.' Both men saluted and the colonel went on hoarsely. Were the news in this document to become public property before its time, nothing could avert the defeat of England in the present worldwide cataclysm. Is it as important as that, colonel? said the major, even more hoarsely, if anything. It is, major. The major's voice sank to a whisper. "'What would not Hindenburg give to see it?' he muttered. "'Aye,' said the colonel, "'I say that to myself day and night. "'What not, what, what would, what, "'well, I say it to myself day and night. "'For this reason, Major, "'I have decided to entrust the news "'to no one but yourself.' Our officers are good lads, and a credit to the dear old regiment. They saluted, as before. But in a matter of this sort one cannot be too discreet. You are right, Colonel. The Colonel looked round the room apprehensively, and brought his chair a little closer to the Major. The secret contained in this document. Are we alone? Except for each other, Colonel. The secret, went on the colonel, is this, that, on and after the twenty-third of the month, men in category X3 are to be included in category X2. My God, gasped the major, if Hindenburg knew. He must not know, major, said the colonel simply. I can trust you not to disclose this until the time is ripe. You can trust me, Colonel. They grasped hands and saluted. At this moment the door opened and an orderly came in. You're wanted by the sergeant major, sir, he told the Colonel. Ah, excuse me a moment, said the latter to his second in command, knowing how much it annoys a sergeant major to be kept waiting. He saluted and hurried out. "'Just a moment, orderly,' said the major. The orderly came back. "'Yes, sir,' he said. "'Did you give that message to Miss Blowhard?' "'Yes, sir. 
she says she cannot play golf with you to-morrow because she is playing with second lieutenant lord smith he saluted and withdrew left alone the major gave vent to his rage lord smith he stormed curse him what can she see in that puppy thrice have i used my influence to send him away on a musketry course and thrice has he returned could i but turn him out of the regiment for good i might win the love of the fair miss blowhard the colonel's daughter in a sudden passion he picked up the manual of military law and flung it to the ground all at once an idea struck him and a crafty look came into his eyes by jove he cried the secret document the very thing to put the document into an envelope was the work of a moment taking up a pen he printed on the outside in large capitals these words for hindenburg germany with a diabolical smile he sealed the envelope up rang the bell and ordered a second lieutenant lord smith to be brought before him you wanted me sir said lord smith on his arrival of all the distinguished officers in the nth battalion lord smith was perhaps the most brilliant although he had held his commission for three years he had only been arrested twice by the provost-marshal the first time for wearing a soft cap when as an officer and gentleman he should have worn a hard one and the second time three months later for wearing a hard cap when as an officer and gentleman he should have worn a soft one nobody can deny that these were serious blots on his career but it was felt in the trenches that his skill with the rifle partially atoned for them ah smith my boy said the major genially i just wanted to know the address of your tailor wonderfully well-cut tunic this of yours he went over to him and under pretence of examining the cut of his tunic dropped the envelope cautiously into one of the pockets somewhat surprised at the compliment paid to his tailor but entirely unsuspicious lord smith gave him the required address thanks said the major by the way i've got to go out now would you mind waiting here till the colonel comes back he has left an extremely important document on his table and i do not like to leave the room unoccupied certainly sir said lord smith left alone our hero gave himself up to thought for some reason he distrusted the major he felt that they were rivals for the hand of rosamund blowhard on ten sundays in succession he had been forced to attend church parade what time the major and rosamund were disporting themselves on the golf links it was only on saturday afternoons that he had a chance of seeing her alone and yet he felt somehow that she loved him ah smith my boy said the colonel as he bustled in always glad to see you my favourite subaltern he went on with his hand on the young man's shoulder the best officer who ever formed a four at bridge i mean whoever formed fours and a holder of no fewer than three musketry certificates lord smith smiled modestly there i must get on with my work went on the colonel sitting down at his table and turning over his papers you find me very you find me you find good heavens what is it sir i don't find it i've lost it the secret document was it very important sir important cried the colonel if hindenburg but we must get to work summon the guard blow the fire alarm send for the orderly sergeant in less than a minute the room was full of armed men including the major 
"'Men of the Nth Blankshires,' said the Colonel, addressing them, "'a document of enormous importance has been stolen from this room. "'Unless that document is recovered, "'the fair name of the regiment will be irretrievably tarnished.' "'Never!' cried a corporal of the signalling section, "'and there was a deep murmur of applause. "'May I suggest, sir,' said the Major, that the pockets of all should be searched i myself am quite ready to set the example and as he spoke he drew out three receipted bills and a price list of tomatoes and placed them before the colonel one by one they followed his example suddenly all eyes were fixed on second lieutenant lord smith as with horror and amazement upon his face he drew from his pocket the official-looking envelope. "'I swear I never put it there, sir,' he gasped. "'Perhaps I ought to tell you, sir,' said the Major, "'that I asked Lord Smith to keep an eye upon the document during my absence. No doubt he placed it in his pocket for safety.' Several men applauded at this suggestion, for Lord Smith was a general favourite. The colonel gave one glance at the envelope, and then, with fire flashing from his eyes, held it up for all to see. "'How do you account for this?' he cried, in a voice of thunder, and with a gasp of horror they read the fatal words, "'For Hindenburg, Germany.' The colonel and the other officers drew their swords. The rank and file fixed bayonets. They hacked the buttons off Lord Smith's tunic. They dug the stars out of his sleeves. They tore the regimental badge from his cap. They tore his collar. They tore his tie. They took his gold cigarette case. And still he stood there, saying proudly, I am innocent. Go, said the colonel, pointing with his sword to the door. Suddenly there was a commotion outside, and a breathless figure pushed its way into the room. "'Father!' cried Rosamond Blowhart. "'Spare him. He is innocent.' "'Rosamond,' said George, or so we must now call him, "'I am innocent. Some day the truth will be known.' Then he took a tender farewell of her, and, casting a glance of mingled suspicion and hatred at the Major, he strode from the room. 2. The patient in the X-th bed at the Y-th base hospital stirred restlessly. Water, he murmured, water. A soft-footed nurse rose and poured some over him. Rosamond, he breathed, and with a smile of content dropped peacefully asleep again. Who was he, this mysterious patient in number X bed? Obviously a gentleman from the color of his pajamas. His identity disc proclaimed him to be Private Smithlord of the Cuth Blankshires. There was something strange about him. Only that morning he had received the VC from Sir Douglas Haig, the RSVP from General Pétain, the Order of the Golden Elephant from our Japanese allies, the Order of the Split Haddock from the President of Nicaragua, and the Order of the Neutral Nut from Brazil. Yet he cared for none of these things. He only murmured, Rosamond, who was Private Smithlord. Though so little was known of him, the story of his prowess was on every lip. An officer from his regiment, who had gone out alone to an observation post, had been surrounded and cut off by the enemy. Threatened on all sides by guns and bombs of every caliber, he had prepared to sell his life dearly. To attempt a rescue would have been madness. Even the most reckless town major would have blenched at the idea. And the regiment in the comparative safety of their trench, could only look on helplessly. 
all but Private Smithlord. Hastily borrowing the colonel's horse, he urged the gallant animal up the trench and away over the top, and then began a race such as had never been seen at Epsom or Melton Mowbray. "'Gad!' said a sporting subaltern, who in peace days had frequently entered for a derby sweepstake at the National Liberal Club. "'The beggar can ride! What?' An answering cheer rang out from all ranks. Over wire entanglements and across shell-holes dashed Private Smithlord, firing rapidly with his revolver all the while. Nearer to the ill-fated officer he drew, and then suddenly he was in the midst of the enemy. Lashing out right and left, he fought his way to the man he had come to rescue, pulled him up behind him, and, amidst a hurricane of bullets, charged back to the British lines. Nor did he pause till he arrived at the colonel's dugout. "'I have brought him back, sir,' he said, and fainted. When he awoke, it was to find himself in the exth bed of the wife base hospital. "'And who is it in the next bed?' It is the officer whom he rescued. Do we recognize him? Alas, no. Although unwounded by the enemy, the exposure of that terrible day had brought on a severe attack of mumps. We cannot recognize him. But the nurse assures us that it is our old friend, Major Murgatroyd. "'A visitor to see you,' said the nurse, coming in and waking Private Smithlord up. "'Can't you say I'm out?' said Smithlord, expecting another foreign decoration, and wondering what language he would have to speak this time. "'It's an English colonel,' said the nurse. Smithlord saluted, and begged the nurse to show him up at once. In another minute, Colonel Blowhard had entered— "'I want to thank you,' said the colonel, "'for so gallantly rescuing an old friend of mine, "'Major Murgatroyd, belonging to the Nth Battalion Blankshires, "'but now attached to the Cuse.' "'Smithlord could hardly repress a start. "'In the excitement of the moment, "'he had not recognized the features of the man he had saved. "'It was his old rival.' "'It is curious,' went on the colonel, "'that in features you resemble another old friend of mine, Lord Smith.' "'My name is Smith, Lord, sir.' "'Ah, any relation?' "'None,' said Smith, Lord, crossing his thumbs under the bedclothes. "'Do you mind ringing the bell?' he went on, "'feeling that, at all costs, he must turn the conversation. "'I think it is time for my medicine.' In answer to the colonel's ring, a nurse appeared. "'Nurse Brown has just gone out,' she said. "'Can I do anything for you?' "'Good heavens! Rosamond!' cried the colonel. "'Yes, father, it is I,' she replied simply. "'I have come to France to find the man I love.' "'Murgatroyd?' said the colonel. "'But this gallant fellow was the man who—by the way, let me introduce you.' "'Private Smithlord, my daughter, Rosamond.' The two looked at each other face to face. The intuition and ready wit of the woman pierced the disguise which had baffled the soldier. "'Father!' she cried. "'It's not Smithlord. It's Lord Smith. George!' "'Rosamond!' cried George. "'We cannot keep the secret any longer from our readers.' It was Lord Smith. "'Tut, tut, sir, what is this?' said the colonel. "'I turned you out of the regiment three weeks ago. "'What the deuce?' he said, "'for, like all military men, he was addicted to strong language. "'What the deuce does this mean?' "'I was innocent, sir.' "'Father, he was innocent.' "'He was innocent.' said a hollow voice from the next bed. In amazement, they all looked at the officer lying there. "'Rosamond,' he cried, "'am I so greatly changed?' 
the colonel handed him his pocket-mirror yes sighed the major i understand but i am major murgatroyd major murgatroyd they all cried this gallant fellow here whom i now know to be lord smith saved my life i cannot let him suffer any longer it was i who hid the secret document in his pocket i did it for love of you rosamond he held out his hand say you forgive me my dear lord smith lord smith shook his hand warmly but little more remains to tell a month later our hero was back in england fortunately the quartermaster had kept his buttons and in a very short time he was back in the dear old uniform and the wedding of second lieutenant lord smith to rosamond blowhard was one of the events of the season and what of major murgatroyd he has learnt his lesson and as a commandant of a rest camp on the french coast he is the soul of geniality to all who meet him the ballad of private chad i sing of george augustus chad who'd always from a baby had a deep affection for his dad in other words his father contrariwise the father's one and only treasure was his son yes even when he'd gone and done things which annoyed him rather for instance if at christmas say or on his parents natal day the thoughtless lad forgot to pay the customary greeting his father's visage only took that dignified reproachful look which dying beetles give the cook above the clouds of keating as years went on such looks were rare the younger chad was always there to greet his father and to share his father's birthday party the pink for old acquaintance sake engraved in sugar on the cake was his the speech he used to make was reverent but hearty the younger chad was twentyish when war broke out but did not wish to get an a s c commish or be a ragtime sailor just private chad he was and went to join his dad's old regiment while dad the dear old dugout sent for red tabs from the tailor to those inured to war's alarms i need not dwell upon the charms of raw recruits when sloping arms nor tell why chad was hoping that if his sloping powers increased they'd give him two days leave at least to join his father's birthday feast and so resumed his sloping one morning on the training ground when fixing bayonets he found the fatal day already round and even as he fixed he decided then and there to state to sergeant brown at any rate his longing to congratulate his sire on being sixty sergeant he said we're on the eve of father's birthday grant me leave and here his bosom gave a heave to offer him my blessing and if a private's tender thanks nay do not blank my blanky blanks i could not help but leave the ranks birthdays are more than dressing the sergeant was a kindly soul he loved his men upon the whole he'd also had a father's role pressed on him fairly lately brave chad he said thou speakest sooth o happy day o pious youth great he extemporized is truth and it shall flourish greatly the sergeant took him by the hand and led him to the captain and the captain tried to understand and more or less succeeded correct me if you don't agree but one of you wants what said he and george augustus chad said me meaning of course that he did the captain took him by the ear and gradually brought him near the colonel who was far from clear but heard it all politely and asked him twice you want a what the captain said that he did not and chad saluted quite a lot 
and put the matter rightly. The colonel took him by the hair, and furtively conveyed him where the general inhaled the air, immaculately booted, then said, Unless I greatly err, this private wishes to prefer a small petition to you, sir, and so again saluted. The general inclined his head towards the two of them, and said, Speak slowly, please, or shout instead. I'm hard of hearing, rather. So Chad, that promising recruit, stood to attention, clicked his boot, and bellowed with his best salute, A happy birthday, father! THE VISITOR'S BOOK as man of the world, said Blake, stretching himself to his full height of five foot three, and speaking with the wisdom of nineteen years, I say that it can't be done. In any other company, certainly. At headquarters, possibly. But not in D Company. D Company has a reputation. All I say, said Rogers, is that if you can't run any mess in the trenches on four francs a day, you're a rotten mess president. Blake turned dramatically to his company commander. Did you hear that, Billy? he asked. Yes, said Billy. I was just going to say it myself. Then, in that case, I have the honor to resign the mess presidency, "'Nothing doing, old boy. You're detailed. "'You can't be detailed to be a president. "'Presidents are elected by popular acclamation. "'They resign, they resign, to avoid being shot. "'Well, anyhow, they resign. "'I shall send my resignation in to the Army Council tonight. "'It will appear in the Gazette in due course.' Second Lieutenant Blake resigns his mess presidency owing to the enormous price of sardines per thousand and the amount of lime juice consumed by casual visitors. I'll tell you what, I'll run the mess on four francs if you'll bar guests. Rot. It's nothing to do with guests. We never have any. Never have any, said Blake indignantly. "'Then I shall keep a visitor's book just to show you.' So that was how the D Company visitor's book was inaugurated. I had the honour of opening it. I happened to be mending a telephone line in this particular trench one Thursday day, and there was the dugout, and, well, there was I. I dropped in. "'Hallo,' said Blake. "'Have a drink.' I had a lime juice.' Then I had another, and then, very reluctantly, I got up to go. Army Form Book 136 was handed to me. The visitor's book, said Blake. You can just write your name in it, or you can be funny, whichever you like. What do they usually do? I asked. Well, you're the first, so you'll set the tone. For God's sake, don't be too funny. It was an alarming responsibility. However, as it happened, I had something which I wanted to say. Thursday, 12.45 p.m., I wrote, pleasantly entertained, as usual, by D. Company, refused a pressing invitation to stay to lunch, although it was a hot day, and I had a long walk back to my own mess. I handed the book back to Blake. He read it, and with one foot on the bottom step of the dugout, I waited anxiously. "'Oh, I say, do stay to lunch,' he said. I gave a start of surprise. "'Oh, thanks very much,' I said, and I took my foot off the step. "'It would be rather, I think, perhaps, well, thanks very much.' Once begun, the book filled up rapidly. Subalterns from other companies used to call round for the purpose of being funny. I suppose that, unconsciously, I had been too humorous. Anyway, the tone had been set. The bombing officer, I remembered, vowed that Mrs. Blake's hospitality was so charming that he would bring his wife and family next time. 
a gunner officer, broke into verse, a painful business. One way and another, it was not long before the last page was reached. "'We must get the general for the last page,' said Blake. "'Don't be an ass,' said Rogers. "'Whatever's the matter, don't you think he'll do it?' "'You wouldn't have the cheek to ask him.' "'Good Lord, you don't stop being a human being because you command a brigade. Why on earth shouldn't I ask him?' I happened to turn up just then. The telephone line from headquarters to D Company always seemed to want attention, whatever part of the line we were in. "'Hallo,' said Blake. "'Have a drink?' "'Well, I am rather thirsty,' I said, and I took out a pencil.' pass the visitor's book and let's get it over no you don't said blake snatching it away from me that's for the general this way sir said a voice above and down came billy followed by the brigadier we jumped up you'll have a drink sir said billy oh thanks very much what will you have sir asked blake looking round wildly lime juice or or lime juice i'll have lime juice thank you said the general after consideration blake produced the book nervously i wonder if you'd mind he began the general looked inquiringly then started feeling for his glasses he was just feeling in his fifth pocket when billy came to the rescue "'It's only some nonsense of Blake's, sir,' he said. "'He keeps a visitor's book.' "'Ah, well,' said the general, getting up. "'Another day, perhaps.' "'When we were alone again, Blake turned on Billy. "'You are a silly ass,' he said. "'If you hadn't interfered, he'd have done it. "'Well, I shall fill it in myself now.' "'He took a pencil and wrote. "'Monday?' Hospitality received by D Company and much enjoyed the mess president's amusing conversation. The company commander and a subaltern named Rogers struck me as rather lacking in intelligence. R. Blake, DSO, Brig Gen. I had been out of it for a long time and when quite accidentally I met an officer of the battalion in London I was nearly a year behind the news. And Blake, I said, after he'd told me some of it, that nice child in D Company, what happened to him? Didn't you hear? He had rather a funny experience. He went into that last show as senior subaltern of D. Billy was knocked out pretty early, and Blake took on. After that, we had a lot of casualties, and finally we were cut off from headquarters altogether and had to carry on on our own. Billy was the senior company commander and took charge of the battalion. I don't quite know how it happened after that. We all got rather mixed up, I suppose. Anyway, at one time Blake was actually commanding the brigade. He was splendid, simply all over the place. He got the DSO. He's rather bucked with himself. Young Blake as a brigadier. Funny, isn't it? Not so very, I said. From a Full Heart In days of peace, my fellow men rightly regarded me as more like a bishop than a major gen, and nothing since has made me more like but when this age-long struggle ends, and I have seen the Allies dish up the goose of Hindenburg, old oh, friends, I shall outbish the mildest bishop. When the war is over and the Kaiser's out of print, I'm going to buy some tortoises and watch the beggars sprint. When the war is over and the sword at last we sheathe, I'm going to keep a jellyfish and listen to it breathe. I never really longed for gore and any taste for red corpuscles that lingered with me left before the German troops had entered Brussels. 
in early days the colonel's shun froze me and as the war grew older the noise of someone else's gun left me considerably colder when the war is over and the battle has been won i'm going to buy a barnacle and take it for a run when the war is over and the german fleet we sink i'm going to keep a silkworm's egg and listen to it think the captains and the kings depart it may be so but not lieutenants dawn after weary dawn i start the never-ending round of penance one rock amid the welter stands on which my gaze is fixed intently an afterlife in quiet lands lived very lazily and gently when the war is over and we've done the belgians proud i'm going to keep a chrysalis and read to it aloud when the war is over and we've finished up the show i'm going to plant a lemon pip and listen to it grow oh i'm tired of the noise and the turmoil of battle and i'm even upset by the lowing of cattle and the clang of bluebells is death to my liver and the roar of the dandelion gives me a shiver and a glacier in movement is much too exciting and i'm nervous when standing on one of a lighting give me peace that is all that is all that i seek say starting on saturday week one star occasionally i receive letters from friends whom i have not seen lately addressed to lieutenant m and apologizing prettily inside in case i am by now a colonel in drawing-rooms i am sometimes called captain er and up at the fort the other day a sentry of the royal defence corps wearing the crecy medal mistook me for a major and presented crossbows to me this is all wrong as mr gavin well points out it is important that we should not have a false perspective of the war let me then make it perfectly plain i am a second lieutenant when i first became a second lieutenant i was rather proud i was a second lieutenant on probation on my right sleeve i wore a single star so star on probation of course on my left sleeve i wore another star so star also on probation they were good stars none better in the service and as we didn't like the sound of on probation celia put a few stitches in them to make them more permanent this proved effective six months later i had a very pleasant note from the king telling me that the days of probation were now over and making it clear that he and i were friends i was now a real second lieutenant on my right sleeve i had a single star thus star not on probation on my left sleeve i also had a single star this star also was now a fixed one from that time forward my thoughts dwelt naturally on promotion there were exalted persons in the regiment called lieutenants they had two stars on each sleeve i decided to become a lieutenant promotion in our regiment was difficult after giving the matter every consideration i came to the conclusion that the only way to win my second star was to save the colonel's life i used to follow him about affectionately in the hope that he would fall into the sea he was a big strong man and a powerful swimmer but once in the water it would not be difficult to cling round his neck and give an impression that i was rescuing him however he refused to fall in i fancy that he wore somebody's military soles which prevent slipping years rolled on i used to look at my stars sometimes one on each sleeve 
they seemed very lonely. At times they came close together, but at other times, as, for instance, when I was semaphoring, they were very far apart. To prevent these occasional separations, Celia took them off my sleeves and put them on my shoulders, one on each shoulder. There they stayed, and more years rolled on. One day Celia came to me in great excitement. "'Have you seen this in the paper about promotion?' she said eagerly. "'No. What is it?' I asked. "'Are they making more generals?' "'I don't know about generals. It's second lieutenants being lieutenants.' "'You're joking on a very grave subject,' I said seriously. "'You can't expect to win the war if you go on like that.' "'Well, you read it,' she said, handing me the paper. I took the paper with a trembling hand and read. She was right. If the paper was to be believed, all second lieutenants were to become lieutenants after eighteen years' service. At last my chance had come. My dear, this is wonderful, I said. In another fifteen years we shall be there. You might buy two more stars this afternoon and practice sewing them on in order to be ready. "'You mustn't be taken by surprise when the actual moment comes.' "'But you're a lieutenant now,' she said. "'If that's true, it says that after eighteen months—' "'I snatched up the paper again. "'Good heavens! It was eighteen months, not years. "'Then I am a lieutenant,' I said. "'We had a bottle of champagne for dinner that night, "'and Celia got the paper and read it aloud to my tunic.' and, just for practice, she took the two stars off my other tunic and sewed them on this one, and we had a very happy evening. "'I suppose it will be a few days before it's announced officially,' I said. "'Father, I suppose it will,' said Celia, and very reluctantly she took one star off each shoulder, and the years rolled on, and I am still a second lieutenant.' I do not complain. Indeed, I am even rather proud of it. If I am not gaining on my original one star, at least I am keeping pace with it. I might so easily have been a corporal by now. But I should like to have seen a little more notice taken of me in the Gazette. I scan it every day, hoping for some such announcement as this. Second Lieutenant M., to remain a second lieutenant, or this, second lieutenant M, to be seconded and to retain his present rank of second lieutenant, or even this, second lieutenant M relinquishes the rank of acting second lieutenant on ceasing to command a battalion and reverts to the rank of second lieutenant. Failing this, I have thought sometimes of making an announcement in the personal column of the Times, Second Lieutenant M. regrets that his duties as a second lieutenant prevent him from replying personally to the many kind inquiries he has received, and begs to take this opportunity of announcing that he still retains a star on each shoulder, both doing well. But perhaps that is unnecessary now. I think that, by this time, I have made it clear just how many stars I possess one on the right shoulder, and one on the left shoulder. That is all. The Joke A Tragedy Stage 1 The joke was born one October day in the trench called Mechanics, not so far from Luz. We had just come back into the line after six days in reserve, and, the afternoon being quiet, I was writing my daily letter to Celia. I was telling her about our cat, imported into our dugout in the hope that it would keep the rats down, when suddenly the joke came. I was so surprised by it that I added in brackets, This is quite my own. I've only just thought of it. Later on, the post-corporal came, and the joke started on its way to England. Stage 2. 
stage two finds me some months later at home again do you remember that joke about the rats in one of your letters said celia one evening yes you never told me if you liked it i simply loved it you aren't going to waste it are you if you simply loved it it wasn't wasted but i want everybody else couldn't you use it in the review i was supposed to be writing a review at this time for a certain impresario i wasn't getting on very fast because whenever i suggested a scene to him he either said oh that's been done which killed it or else he said oh but that's never been done which killed it even more completely good idea i said to celia we'll have a trench scene i suggested it to the impresario when next i saw him oh that's been done he said mine will be quite different from anybody else's i said firmly he brightened up a little all right try it he said i seemed to have discovered the secret of successful review writing the trench scene was written it was written round the joke whose bright beams like a perfect jewel in a perfect setting however i said all that to celia at the time she was just going to have said it herself she told me so far so good but a month later the review collapsed the impresario and i agreed upon many things as for instance that the war would be a long one and that hindenburg was no fool but there were two points upon which we could never quite agree one what was funny and two which of us was writing the review so with mutual expressions of goodwill and hopes that one day we might write a tragedy together we parted that ended the review it ended the trench scene and for the moment it ended the joke stage three stage three finds the war over and celia still at it you haven't got that joke in yet she had just read an article of mine called autumn in a country vicarage it wouldn't go in there very well i said it would go in anywhere where there were rats there might easily be rats in a vicarage not in this one you talk about poor as a church mouse i am an artist i said thumping my heart and forehead and other seats of the emotions i don't happen to see rats there and if i don't see them i can't write about them anyhow they wouldn't be secular rats like the ones i made my jokes about i don't mind whether the rats are secular or circular said celia but do get them in soon well i tried i really did try but for months i couldn't get those rats in it was a near thing sometimes and i would think that i had them in but at last moment they would whisk off and back into their holes again i even wrote an article about cooking in the great war feeling that that would surely tempt them but they were not to be drawn stage four but at last the perfect opportunity came i received a letter from a botanical paper asking for an article on the flora of trench life hooray said celia there you are i sat down and wrote the article working up gradually to the subject of rats and even more gradually intertwining it so to speak with the subject of cats i brought it off in one perfect climax the great joke lovely said celia excitedly there is one small point which has occurred to me rats are fauna not flora i've just remembered oh does it matter for a botanical paper mm, yes and then celia had a brilliant inspiration send it to another paper she said i did two days later it appeared considering that i hadn't had a proof 
it came out extraordinarily well. There was only one misprint. It was the critical word of the joke. Stage five. That's torn it, I said to Celia. I suppose it has, she said sadly. The world will never hear the joke now. It's had it wrong, but still it's had it, and I can't repeat it. Celia began to smile. It's sickening, she said, but it's really rather funny, you know. And then she had another brilliant inspiration. In fact, you might write an article about it. And, as you see, I have. Epilogue Having read thus far, Celia says, But you still haven't got the joke in. Oh, well, here goes. Extract from Letter We came back to the line today to find that the cat had kittened. However, as all the rats seem to have rottened, we are much as we were. Rottened was misprinted rattened, which seems to me to spoil the joke. Yet I must confess that there are times now when I feel that perhaps, after all, I may have overrated it. But it was a pleasant joke in its day. The Last Pot Let others hymn the weariness and pain, or, if they will, the glory and the glamour, of holding fast from Flanders to Lorraine, the thin brown line at which the Germans hammer, my muse, a more domesticated maid, aspires to sing a song of marmalade. Oh, marmalade, I do not mean the sort, sweet marrow pulp for babes and maidens bitter, but that wherein the golden fishes sport on oranges seize with just a dash of bitter not falsely coy but eager to parade their southern birth in short oh marmalade much have i sacrificed my happy home my faith in experts figures half my money the fortnight that i meant to spend in rome my weekly effort to be fairly funny but these are trifles, light as air when weighed against this other breakfast marmalade. Fair was the porridge in the days of peace, and still more fair the cream and sugar taken. Plump were the twin poached eggs, yet not obese, upon their thrones of toast, and crisp the bacon. I face their loss undaunted, unafraid if only I may keep my marmalade. An evening press without calisthenes, a table's staff, an immobile spaghetti, a shawl with whom the common man agrees, a zambra searching vainly for negretti, when spades are trumps, a hand without a spade, so is my breakfast lacking marmalade. O oh, Northcliffe, Lord, O oh, Keeler, O oh, Dundee, O oh, Cross and Blackwell Limited, O oh, Seville, O oh, Orange Groves along the Middle Sea, O oh, Jaffa, for example, O oh, the Devil, let beef and butter rolls and rabbits fade, but give me back my love, my marmalade. The Story That Went West why don't you write a war story, said Celia one autumn day, when that sort of story was popular. Because everyone else does, I said. I forget how many bayonets we have on the western front, but there must be at least twice as many fountain pens. It needn't be about the western front. Unfortunately, that's the only front I know anything about. I thought writers used their imagination sometimes, said Celia to anybody who might happen to be listening. Oh, well, if you put it like that, I suppose I must. So I settled down to a story about the Salonica front. 
the scene of my story was laid in an old clay hut amid the wattles what are wattles asked celia when i told her the good news local colour i explained they grow in bulgaria are you sure i'm sure that these ones did i don't know about any others of course more local colour was wanted than a mere wattle or two it was necessary therefore for my bulgarians always to go about in comitages celia thought that these were a kind of native trouser laced at the knee she may be right my own impression is that they are a species of platoon anyhow the bulgars always went about in them there was a fierce fight which raged round the old clay hut in the wattles the greeks shouted tupto tuptumai the serbs for reasons into which i need not enter were inarticulate with rage with the french and british i had of course no difficulty and the bulgars fortunately were content with hoarse guttural noises it was a fierce fight while it lasted and i was sorry when it was over because for the first time i began to feel at home with my story i need not say that many a bulgar had licked the wattles before i had finished unfortunately something else happened before i had finished what do you think cried celia bursting into my room one evening just when i was wondering whether my readers would expect to know more of the heroine's native costume than that it was simple yet becoming wait a moment i said it's too good to wait said celia excitedly bulgaria has surrendered celia may be a good patriot but she lacks the artistic temperament oh has she i said bitterly then she's jolly well spoilt my story the one about wattles yes tut tuttles said celia well i wasn't going to waste my wattles with great presence of mind i decided to transfer my story to the palestine front under a hard blue sky of intense brilliance the old clay hut stood amongst the wattles a wadi ran by the side of it not a small turkish dog as celia thought but well everybody knows what a wadi is the battle went on much as before except that the turks were naturally more outspoken than the bulgars calling freely upon allah at the beginning of the fight and reconciling themselves to the end of it with kismet i also turned some of the horses into camels and for the sake of the indian troops several pairs of potees into chupatis it was a good story while it lasted however nobody seems to care about art nowadays what do you think cried celia bursting into my room i held up a delaying hand i had suddenly thought of the word adobe my story seemed to need it somewhere if possible among the wattles but listen she read out the headline turkey surrenders at discretion discretion i said indignantly i have never heard of anything so tactless and it isn't as though i could even move on to mesopotamia couldn't there be a little local rising in persia suggested celia i doubt it i doubt it i said thoughtfully you can't do much with just wattles and a little sherbet i mean you can't expect the public to be interested in persia at such a moment as this no we shall have to step westward we must see what we can do with the italian front but i had very little hope a curious foreboding of evil came over me as i placed those wattles tenderly along the west bank of the piave the old clay hut still stood proudly amid them the bersaglieri advanced impetuously with cries of en avant no no that's wrong with cries of well anyhow they advanced they advanced and 
as I shut my eyes, I seemed to see, no, not that old clay hut amid the wattles, nor yet the adobe edifice on the heights of Asiago, but Celia coming into the library with yet another paper announcing that yet another country was deaf to the call of art. If anybody wants a really good story about the Peninsular War and will drop me a line, I shall be glad to enter into negotiations with him. The scene is laid in the neighborhood of Badajos, and the chief interest centers round an old, yes, you have guessed it, an old clay hut in the wattles. The Two Visits 1888-1919 Dispersal areas 10A, 10B, 10C, Crystal Palace It was, I think, in 88 that luck or providence or fate assumed the more material state of Aunt or Great Aunt Alice and took the weather being fine, and Bill, the eldest, only nine, three of us, by the Brighton line, to see the Crystal Palace. Observe us, then, an eager four, advancing on the western door, or possibly the northern, or, well, anyhow, advancing, Aunt Alice bending from the hips, and Bill in little runs and trips, and John with frequent hops and skips, while I was fairly dancing. Aunt Alice pays, the turnstile clicks, and with the happy crowds we mix to gaze upon, well, I was six, say, getting on for seven, and looking back on it today, the memories have passed away, I find that I can only say, roughly, to gaze on heaven. Heaven it was which came to pass, within those magic walls of glass, though William, like a silly ass, had lost my bag of bull's-eyes, the wonders of that wonder-hall, the all the things I can't recall, and, dominating over all, the statues more than full-size. Adam and Niobe were there, Disraeli much the worse for wear, Samson, before he cut his hair, Lord Byron, and Apollo, a female group surrounded by a camel, though I don't know why, and all of them were ten feet high, and all, I think, were hollow. These gods looked down on us and smiled to see how utterly a child by simple things may be beguiled to happiness and laughter. It warmed their kindly hearts to see the joy of Bill and John and me, from ten to lunch, from lunch to tea, from tea to six or after. That evening, when the day was dead, they tucked a babe of six in bed, arranged the pillows for his head, and saw the lights were shaded. Too sleepy for the good-night kiss, his only conscious thought was this— no man shall ever taste the bliss that I this blessed day did. When one is six, one cannot tell, and John, who at the palace fell a victim to the Blondin Bell, is wedded to another. And I, my intimates allow, have lost the taste for bull's-eyes now, and baldness decorates the brow of Bill, our eldest brother. Well, more than thirty years have passed, but all the same on Thursday last my heart was beating just as fast within that hall of wonder. My bliss was every bit as great as what it was in eighty-eight, impossible to look sedate or keep my feelings under. The gods of old still gazed upon the scene where, thirty years agone, the lines of Bill and me and John were cast in pleasant places. And, friends, I murmured, what's the odds, if you are rather battered gods? This is no time for Ichabods, 
and a hugh er fugaces ah no i did not mourn the years fell work upon those poor old dears nor pitt nor venus drew my tears and set me slowly sobbing i hailed them with a happy laugh and slapped old sampson on the calf and asked a member of the staff for officers demobbing that evening being then dispersed i swore as i had sworn it first when three of us went on the burst with aunt or great-aunt alice although one finds as man or boy a thousand pleasures to enjoy for happiness without alloy give me the crystal palace end of section five